This is the Warm Springs Program on KWSO. Winona LaDuke is a Native American economist, environmentalist, writer, and executive director of Honor the Earth. She is a global leader and an economist focused on issues of culturally-based sustainable development strategies, renewable energy, water protection, and sustainable food systems. She was featured on COCC's Season of Nonviolence program and shared her views on the Green Path Ahead, Indigenous Teachings for the Next Economy. She talks about how she wants to make America great again. Now I want to talk, start by talking about making America great again. I always like to talk about that. So my idea of when America was great is when there was 10,000 varieties of corn. That's what we're talking about. So many varieties of corn. And Corn is one of those plants that is actually from the Western Hemisphere. And, and all of those corn varieties from popcorn to all these colors of red corn, and I grow blue corn, and I got purple corn, and I got this variety that looks like Janis Joplin. It's all psychedelic. Those were all developed by people like me, indigenous people who saved seeds and figured out what grew the best, what tasted different, what made the best corn flour, you know, maybe what preserved the best. You know, nobody from Monsanto helped us create the biodiversity, a tremendous agrobiodiversity and tremendous biodiversity. That's when America was great. America was great when there were 50 million buffalo. That's when America was great. And they, the single largest migratory herd in the world, the buffalo. That's when America was great. 50 million buffalo lived on all of the prairie grasslands and in that all kinds of species of grass, tremendous biodiversity. And a buffalo is a strong guy in the wintertime. They are strong guys. They can last in a pitching snowstorm. They can live. America was great when we had all this wild rice. That's not a pasture. That's wild rice. And it grows on the lake. In each year in succession, that wild rice comes. And all you have to do is take care of the water quality and the water level in your lake. And that's a pretty good gift is to be able to live that good. And so to me, you know, America was great when you could drink the water from every stream and river, when there was millions, billions of passenger pigeons, which darkened the skies, when the animals were, and the salmon were in abundance. That's when America was great. And I feel like my job is to do my best to take care of those relatives and to, and to keep some things great for them. Winona talks about preserving the rights of Mother Earth. Now, the problems are many. One of them is that corporations are considered natural persons under the law. And so the rights of corporations, as I have found in my arrests in Minnesota, the rights of Canadian corporations supersede the rights of individuals. And I feel like that's wrong. That is wrong. A corporation is not a person. A person has a soul. A corporation doesn't have a soul. It can't be a person. But more than that, there's the recognition of who should have rights. And so in 2008, the country of Ecuador recognized Pachamama, or the rights of Mother Earth. In 2010, Bolivia recognized the rights of Mother Earth. This is Evo Morales talking about the right to be, to inhabit, to restore, to continue to be free of contamination and genetic engineering. Those rights were recognized in 2010. In 2012, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the rights of the Wanagui River were recognized. 
as, as the river having a right. And Iwi person, our Maori person was appointed as the guardian of the river. In 2018, my tribe declared the rights of wild rice and recognized our wild rice as having a right to continue to exist and flourish, to have water quality and to be free from genetic contamination. Following us, the Nez Perce tribe recognized the rights of the river. That is the Snake River. The, the rights of the Klamath River were recognized by the Yurok tribe. I think that was last year. I'm telling you this because there's a change in the legal systems. And that change is moving us towards the recognition of the rights of Mother Earth or the rights of nature over the rights of corporations. So and it's not only changing to me your economy, but it's also changing your legal systems to be more uh, protective of the world that we value. In this, you know, I'm grateful to be with you all tonight. You know, I'm here because I'm also going to invest in the future, in these moments that we are in. You know, it is, it is these times when we need to invest and train and love our next generation because they will be caring for us. She talks about getting her food systems local. Now, why am I interested in that? Because the pandemic showed us that food's not stable. That's one. They destroyed all kind of vegetables and eggs and animals during the pandemic because their markets were messed up. Now you got to eat. And so it turns out that most of our food travels 1,400 miles from farmer to table. And that is uh, a long ways for something to travel. So what if we try to make it more local? We are uh, putting in some crops. Also, we do. It's been a really good lesson on how to rebuild a food system. I'm interested in post-fossil fuels agriculture. That's what I'm interested in. Like, how much can you do without oil? How little oil can you use? That's us. We're super interested in this question. And so this is how we do it. And then this is what we grow. We grow corn, beans, squash, potatoes, Jerusalem artichokes or sunchokes, tobacco. And then we grow all kind of other stuff uh, like hemp. And I'm going to talk about that briefly. I don't grow anything with THC in it. But these are potatoes. I do grow 17 kinds of potatoes. And I'm growing them because I like purple potatoes. I actually like purple potatoes, they're my favorite. But these potatoes, I'm also growing because I'm interested in what survives the best. So this year I had a drought and some potatoes rocked it, the drought, and some just like barely produced. So what you learn by farming, my father used to tell me, you know, Winona, you're a really smart young woman, but I don't hear, want to hear your philosophy if you can't grow corn. That's what he said. He said, can you grow corn? And so I started growing all this food. And what I learned is that the biodiversity protects you, like these potatoes, like some things are going to grow and some things are not. And also, history will teach you that because the Irish potato family was about growing one kind of, of potato. So grow cool stuff and learn from it. Let the plants teach you and grow a lot of varieties because you're going to have more food, self-sufficiency, and security. And then uh, grow cool squash. I started growing this squash about 10 years ago. And when I was growing it, and people said, well, what's it called? What's it called? And I said, I don't know what it's called. And then one day I decided to name the squash. 
And uh, because white guys name stuff all the time, they're busy naming stars and planets and spaceships. I named the squash Gete Okosamen, which means basically really cool old squash in Ojibwe. This squash is really resilient. And, you know, a squash is all full of possibilities. There's about 1,600 seeds of this squash. That is about possibility and hope. I'm interested in growing squash. Look, food travels far. Food is wasted. Don't be a pig. Eat better. Grow your own. And that's a lot better for Mother Earth. And also, it's better for you. Because right now, half of us look like the Pillsbury Doughboy. And you don't want to look like the Pillsbury Doughboy. You know, you want to be like somebody who is healthy. So how you get healthy is you eat local and you use a hoe. A hoe is a garden implement. That's how you do it, is you get healthy by being outside. Winona now talks about how to make natural foods more accessible. Make community farms or community gardens accessible so that people can have a little plot, you know, because, I mean, I was talking earlier today and I think that, you know, you could, you could make like eight, you know, raise like the equivalent of like $800 worth of food in a small garden plot, you know, and you'll eat better and trade up. So, you know, I think that it's not like you guys are all in, in New York City. I think you could figure out how to get some garden space there and coach some people along. And then, you know, then I think that they're starting to get more ways to access, I think in Minnesota and probably in Oregon, like even with some of your food support systems, you can go to the farmer's market and get food there. And so, you know, that's what I think is, is in Oregon, you have so much more access to food than we do here. I mean, we have good access. Don't mistake me, but I know how long your growing season is. So, <laughs> She talks about how we are addicted to fossil fuels. I have spent my whole life in the fossil fuel era. And I want a way out. That's what I want. I want a way out. I don't want to live the rest of my life in it. I want renewable energy. I don't want to crash my way out. I want a good system. And, you know, to do that, though, you got to make this resistance. So this was me all last winter, standing there by equipment, shuffling around, minus 20, minus 20, standing out there, freezing, freezing. And those kids there, three of those kids are my grandchildren. We're, we're doing our best to stand up. Or a bunch of older women, you know, you saw that. Why are we doing this? What is going on? How are they? Why are they making these decisions? You know, and I feel like that what we face is late stage fossil fuel addiction. It's like addict behavior. It's addict behavior. It's addict behavior when you gotta like drill 20,000 feet under the ocean because you can get oil. And then you just pray like, heck, it works out for you. And it works until you get the deep water horizon, you know, which was like such a disastrous oil spill. Or maybe you got to do something like frack, drill down into the bedrock and explode it with a bunch of chemicals and harvest the, the gas out of that. That seems pretty extreme. Or maybe you want to go up into the Arctic and drill or the tar sands, the dirtiest oil in the world. My point is, it's like you're doing extreme actions and that's what's called extreme extraction and extreme behavior. Now, when I was a kid, which was a few years back, like oil was a lot more accessible. A hundred years ago, oil was more accessible. But in my lifetime, I consumed half the world's oil. Sorry. <laughs> what I'm saying is the stuff that's out there now is hard to get. 
And so what we need to do is to move from that stuff because it's destroying the planet and uh, with climate change and CO2, but also it's making people get arrested like me, you know, when we're just trying to protect our Mother Earth. Now Winona talks about saving the ecosystem. I spent most of my life fighting stupid ideas. <laughs> I mean, you know, I heard so many crazy ideas and, you know, I mean, so a lot of those, but maybe stopping the genetic engineering of wild rice. That was pretty cool. You know, I mean, why would you want to genetically engineer everything wild? You know, I mean, you got the wild salmon versus the farm salmon problem out there. So I feel good about, you know, we defeated a pipeline out here. They got the second one in. We beat them once. We didn't beat them the second time. I mean, you try to stop those things and you do your best to save ecosystems. And that's a good thing to do. Like I sleep, I'm exhausted every night, but I sleep so good. <laughs> she now talks about how we can inspire the people around us to be more conscious and respectful of Mother Earth. Example. You can educate people and inform them. You can show them kind of what's going on. And they have to kind of like wake up to it because a lot of people have just gotten so conditioned to, yeah, we just do that. I was like, no, you don't. You don't need to do that. And then, but then, so show that there's a different way and, and model it, model it. But, you know, I have the same, I, I work with the same thing y'all do. I mean, y'all hung out with me and I'm, I'm really cool. <laughs> and I work with people that are, are cool too. But then I just look over there and I was like, I mean, I do say it. I was like, the garbage. Can you like not do that? You know, I mean, people don't think about how much garbage we make. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm kind of, I don't want to say I'm doing like a competition, but to see who can make the least garbage, right? That's better. She talks about the many values of hemp. So this is one of my favorite things that I do in my life. This is our first hemp crop. And this is fiber hemp. And this fiber hemp, you can't get high on it. It grows kind of like bamboo. It grows really fast. And so it sequesters carbon because it grows so fast. We grew this and it grows like weed. You know, you tend to it, but it's not like the CBD and cannabis plants that a lot of people are growing out here. These are plants that are really happy to grow um, with good fertilizer. So this is what you do with them. I call this the new green revolution. And I'm interested mostly in textile hemp and um, fiber hemp. And so like a tree, you could replace all kinds of stuff with hemp. And it can be used a lot more easily for, for making paper. And it can be recycled more often. And it produces more per acre. By and large, most of us wear polyester. And po the problem with polyester is that's all fossil fuels. H&M and those other guys, that's fast fashion. And that's like adding so many tons of basically fossil fuels garbage to our landfills every year, you know, people just toss that stuff. This is wrong. And then cotton uses about a quarter of the world's pesticides and 4% of the world's water. So what if we try to figure out how to make a, things again that were less toxic? The word canvas comes from cannabis. And so if you could just turn hemp into canvas again and make tarps, that'd be great. So that's what I'm interested in doing, but I'm interested in all of this too. This is uh, building materials. And that plant is 70% uh, herd, which they make hempcrete out of, and 30% fiber. And the fiber is just magical for clothing and insulation. It kind of replaces fiberglass. And I put that in on my garage. I just insulated my garage. 
ingenious, just ingenious, this kind of work that is going on. And then it also biodegrades. So I think of hemp as the new green revolution because anything you make out of fossil fuels, basically you can make out of hemp. You know, one of the questions we might ask is how much stuff do we really wanna make? Because we're drowning in stuff. So maybe we just make less stuff, that'd be great too. But when you make stuff, you should make it not out of fossil fuels. Eastern Oregon is probably better for this crop. It likes it dry, doesn't need irrigation. Winona answers a question about changing our economy for a better earth. I think that people think business as usual. Well, I'm looking out there and I'm like, you probably don't want to keep doing that. That's dumb. I don't really know what to say, but we do like all kind of excessive behavior and you can't do it. You need to learn to live more reasonably. And I know that there's this like idea that this is the American way. Well, it's a pretty recent phenomena, this level of consumption. Like, for instance, what I'm working on is the hemp battery. The hemp can make batteries, right? They, they're super capacitators already. I've been working with these guys, Hemp Inc. I'm not the genius, but I'm like, look at that. And then they got new stuff on the, besides the lithium that you could reuse them and they're better the second time. What I'm trying to say on this is like, look, one, cut back your use. Two, get efficient, quit transporting food around the country, transport it locally. So reduce your energy use is the first thing because you don't need flowers from Colombia every day. And that's what we're doing. You don't need Fiji water. That should be a crime. Fiji needs to just keep its water and you don't need to spend $8 on a quart of water anyway. Put yourself on a fossil fuel addict diet. I do it myself because I just won't think and I'll be like, no, I don't need that and I'm not going to get it. I'm just being honest with you. We all suffer from this, the buzz of consumption, right? The other thing is, is that innovative, like disruptive technologies. What do I mean by disruptive technologies? Elon Musk. Like, I don't like that guy, but I like that guy. Because what he did to the cars, nobody thought would happen. And he's revolutionized the electric car. I mean, and of course, like now Chevy and Ford are in there, but they were like, no way, that's never going to work. Who's the richest guys in the world? It's not the Exxons anymore. The top of the world is these guys with disruptive technologies, the tech heads. And so my point is disruptive technologies can change the world. And we need to keep having technologies, but they need to be reined in so that they're helpful technologies. You know, I feel like that a combination between innovation and reduced use is going to be very important. Some stuff we just got to let go. And I know that that's painful for people to accept that some things we just aren't going to need to keep with us. But do you really need a styrofoam plate? There's stuff that we have. We have stuff. We don't need stuff. We need life, not stuff. Winona talks about the move from fossil fuel transportation to electric transportation. The electric cars are increasing dramatically in our country. We all know that. That the, uh, every major car manufacturer was laughing at Tesla. But there's a reason that, that Elon Musk is the richest guy in the world. And that has a lot to do with electric engines. So I drive a fossil fuel car. I have a truck. And I'm, I'm waiting for my F-150 Lightning. That's what I want, an F-150 Lightning. And why do I want an F-150 Lightning? Well, first of all, I have to have a truck because I farm. So there's no getting around that one. I want an F-150 Lightning because an electric engine has 100 parts and a combustion engine has about 1,000 parts. And in that, there's a loss of efficiency because every part has to move. And when they move, that takes energy. So just to be kind of clear about it, 
combustion engine is 15% efficient and an electric engine is about 65% efficient. At some level, I have to say, who wants to hang around with a 15% efficient engine when you could go electric, you know? And then the thing is, is that you need the innovation of powering it. More efficient than a car is a train. There's a lot of us that would love to have a train to get anywhere. The train is a good way to get around, but America doesn't do that. This idea here is called solutionary rail. And the solutionary rail is focused on the use of uh, electric trains. And in fact, direct charge on electric trains and powering the trains with renewable energy. If you power those trains with electricity, you're going to have a far more efficient, like an 80% efficient system. And that's how you want to transport stuff. You know, this is also something that Native people can participate in because the right-of-ways were taken from our land. And so I feel that the future trains we should also own, but I want them to be electric. I just think it's crazy because I feel like America thinks it's super smart, but I don't think we're so smart. The percentage of electric trains worldwide, and look at Italy, 64, France, 52, Germany, the smart countries, and then there's us. So the potential for getting more efficient in train system, which is really the backbone of the transportation system of this country, is electric. And we get to be the ones that create that system. This is what solutionary rail is, and that can really transform energy use and transportation in this country. And that's what we want to do. We have to be transformational. We have to think big, be transformational. And then we also need to be local. You need to have big ideas, but you also need to have local ideas. Winona talks about solar thermal energy and being efficient with conserving our energy. You guys probably know about solar and wind energy, but our work is really around this idea of solar thermal. I think this would go well in your area. So this is the story. That box there is a really simple technology. The sun goes beaming on the side of your house and then the box gets warm and when it gets warm it stores the heat in there and then you turn on your fan inside when it hits 90 degrees and it blows hot air into your house this can save about 20 percent of your heating bill we use these to to heat our houses up my house is heated by solar and wood and then we make these we employ our own people making them and we and we sell them nationally the fact is, is that a solar wind at some kind of a scale is really a stable source of energy uh, for a lot of places. And in addition to that, however, you want to just basically use less energy, like be efficient. And the reason I'm talking about that is that we basically waste two thirds of our energy and we need to not waste and we need to make better decisions. I think that the pandemic taught us a lot about that because we couldn't go places. And so we stayed home and reduced our fossil fuels consumption for transportation significantly. The other thing is, is that we just need to make better decisions on what we transport and how we transport it. That was Native American environmentalist Winona LaDuke. Thank you for tuning in to your community radio station. This is the Warm Springs program on KWSO. I'm Duncan Bruno.